Good morning. It's always good to be together. One of the most thoughtful questions that we can ever be equipped to ask someone that is either in the middle of a transition or considering a transition or has just made a shift of lifestyle or, or, or places and situations they're in in their life is questions that are phrased like this, have you considered? Have you considered? Have you considered questions or questions that reflect not only that you've thought about what you're asking that person in their situation, you've taken time to consider it, but in a genuine, loving, caring way, you have asked very sincerely and you've thought very prayerfully about the condition they find themselves in, even if it's something small or something much, much larger. Larger. In our text this morning, as we go into Galatians chapter 4, my hope for us is that we would be confident to be able to ask others lovingly and genuinely, have you considered type questions? Paul, in this text, he labors for the church in Galatia like a father, but in reality, in our text, like a mother. He explains the dynamic of the relationship like a mother who has been in childbirth and labor for them. And now they're at a point in their life when it's as though they're tempted to disown him, to disown, more specifically, the biblical gospel, that you and I can be saved, made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ Jesus alone. This good news, this message that we proclaim and we build our lives upon, contained in the Scriptures, Jesus Christ buried and rose again, that he ascended to heaven and he is coming again sometime soon. And all who will come to him will find forgiveness. All who surrender and entrust their life to him will receive newness of life, will reign with him for eternity, will be with Christ our King forever. And those that are tempted to walk away from him, to abandon that truth, find themselves on the other side of a river, in which we lovingly are called to, as the congregation of the Lord, to ask them these types of questions. Have you considered questions that our hope, if they've already gone to the other side of the river, might bring an awareness to them of stones that they skipped on the way, and that by God's grace, they might step back across to the true and beautiful news of the gospel. Or if we find themselves headed that way on the other side of the river, which apparently in Galatia, a multitude of the Gentile Christians, those that are non-ethnically Jewish, that have placed their faith in Christ, they're being tempted to walk stone after stone to the other side of the river, to Judaism, and abandon the biblical gospel. And so I phrased for us in our text... I phrased it down into five types of have you considered questions. And my hope for us is that at least three things would take place this morning. Number one, that you would reflect on them yourself personally, as I have and am and will continue to do, to ask the Lord to search your heart in these areas to see if there's any vulnerabilities or areas of conviction or comfort He might give you in these five types of questions. But secondly, that you might be more equipped that the next time you find yourself in an opportunity for a conversation with a, with a friend or a family member or a neighbor or coworker, that you might be prayerfully aware of asking, have you considered type of questions that show sincere care, and yet are not over the top, they're not offensive, they're very genuine in what they are. My third application as we come to this text is that we would see, that you would see, I think is as clear as day in what we're walking through, and it's going to become even more clear in the rest of the book of Galatians, 
that the Lord has wired us as believers. The Lord has wired us to be committed in a local congregation, a Bible teaching congregation committed to being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, that that is God's wiring for us. That is a key element in how we grow as disciples, but how he's made us as family, adopted by faith in Christ alone, committed to being the people of God in a local community. And I'd like to tell you that's for sure going to be Grace Bible Church for you. And I hope it is. I'm full discretion here. I hope that you find yourself at home here, that you would, in the coming months, commit yourself to say, this is my church family. This is the people I'm going to commit to hold me accountable, to walk in my faith with, to be and make disciples, to make sure I walk after Christ together. But if not, there are other sound Bible teaching churches. The First Christian Church with Charlie Colgan does a wonderful job. First Baptist with Noel Deere does a wonderful job preaching the gospel faithfully. But my point is, as we've come to this text, it's abundantly clear that as believers in Jesus Christ, God has made us and calls us to be in fellowship with a congregation pouring our lives out for the goodness of the gospel until Christ should call us home, individually or corporately, as he comes for his bride. So now look at our text as we notice, first and foremost, this first question. Five types of questions. Have you considered questions? Have you considered, first and foremost, in verse 8, that you were enslaved to false gods once before? Verse 8. Have you considered that you were enslaved to false gods once before? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You'll see that in the pew back in front of you if you'd like to follow along. In verse 8, it reads in this way, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, I'd like for you to flip over, keep this marked, but go back to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. He points out their former life. Galatians 1.13, one of the beautiful gifts of just taking a text of Scripture and walking through it week after week to soak up the Scriptures is that not only are we able to marvel in them and appreciate what they are, but as we go further in the book, it allows us to swing back around and see what Paul is doing in a greater scale, to appreciate what he says at the moment in that paragraph, in that sentence, but to see how he's actually being an architect in an argument that he's building to a people that he loves dearly, like a mother to the children that she has birthed and cares for. So if you look back in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, see if this language sounds familiar. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. And the text continues on. But how does he begin that? Formerly. Formerly. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. And what does he do now back in Galatians chapter 5 or 4 in our text, verse 8? He says, same word, same idea. Formerly. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. What Paul is doing is he's bringing an awareness that this congregation that's being tempted to abandon the truth of the biblical gospel. They're being tempted to pursue his former life. Do you see that? Now, we spoke about this before, but I so encourage you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, that you would write down your testimony. Write down your story. Write it down. Put it somewhere. Type it up. Be able to articulate it to other people. And here's, I think, one of the beautiful reasons for why we should do so. We should be unashamed to share our former life before we came to Christ. doesn't mean we're proud of it. It doesn't even mean it's radical. 
I was six years old when I came to Christ. I didn't have a rap sheet before I uh, came to faith in Christ. It wasn't a wild story, but it was still a part of my story of God's grace of growing up and, and hearing the gospel preached regularly. And, and it still had to take the Lord's taking my hardened heart and breaking it and, and, and opening my eyes to the truth of the gospel. I had a former life. All that know Christ have a former life. One of the reasons we see in a text like this why it's so important that we're able to articulate not only our life before Christ, but when we came to understand the gospel in our life since, is because there are people here in this room who today may be very well being enticed to abandon the gospel, to chase after your former life. The church in Galatia, he's already shared with them the passion that he had in Judaism, and how he was growing in Judaism fervently to the point of persecuting Christians. He's already shared his former story, and he's pointing out to them now their former life. They didn't grow up as Jews learning the Scriptures, learning the Hebrew Scriptures. They grew up in a pagan belief system. But the point is the same. They were both held captive. They were both enslaved, ensnared, as the language uses it. They were both captive until they met Christ. Now his point is, now that we're on the same team, we're all been set free by Christ the key, the king and the key, Christ. You're now being tempted to abandon Christ and chase after my former life. Believer, I encourage you, share your former life with others. Be not ashamed to share it. And you never know in the context of a body of Christ how that might minister to them. I've heard multiple conversations already since being here, even the last year, of how individuals heard a testimony, be it from baptism or another, to say, you know what, I actually had that background. And some people who have yet to come to Christ may be wrestling with that background even in non-salvation issues, to share of your story of how the Lord is growing you and sanctifying you, growing you in Christ-likeness is incredible. My wife and I, Sarah, for example, we uh, had a prolonged season of, uh, uh, of being a, a, a infertility. Uh, and we just started deciding, you know what, we're just going to start sharing with people that story because we got tired of people asking us when we're having kids. Right? <laughs> Probably inappropriate, but we would joke and say we're still trying to figure it out. Right, that's probably. So we would do those things, and finally we just started sharing, you know what, why do we need to make this weird? Why don't we just start asking for prayer if that's where we're at? So we started to do that, and I shared it one time, and we just, the unbelievable, the amount of people from our church family that begin to come up and share, hey, us too. Hey, me too. Uh, we're talking not just people are, we're talking many, many older members. And it gave us an opportunity to be able to fellowship together and see how the gospel can interact us and comfort us as we go through what is, in a way, a grieving process that happens every month. And that's an area as believers, as we grow together and we grow in the gospel, and we unashamedly say, hey, this is what the Lord's working in my life. This is where he's challenging me and he's developing me. And here's my insecurities and how the gospel impacts me here. That allows us to say, that was my former life. And, and even now that I'm in Christ, here's where I'm struggling to live for Christ. Here's where I'm struggling to put my identity in things that I know aren't in the gospel. But man, it's a weight upon my shoulders. Will you pray with me and will you sweat with me? And that's part of the beauty of the gospel. And so this first question, have you considered that you were once enslaved to false gods once before? Now, though the law was not a false god, the law held the Jews captive until Christ the key came. And it's the same for all those that do not know Christ, whether they're coming from a pagan background or a different religion. 
The point is all the same. They are held captive until they know Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, fully God, fully man, the one who kept the fullness of the law, the only one who can bring us forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons in Christ and heirs, as Roman preached on last week in our text. He is our only hope. If you know Christ, you know salvation. Don't be enticed by the foolishness of this world. This is a challenge to every one of us. And the danger in the application, if we're to walk it out even further, even though I could give you a host of texts here to go through, the foolishness is, that he's giving to him is like this example. When I go home sometimes, I, I, I struggle. I got a multitude of keys. And so I, sometimes if I'm not looking right, or all the, you know, I, I put the wrong key in the door. I'm locked out. My family's on the inside. I put the wrong key in the door. I never get angry and spike the key. Right? That would, oh, you know, how dare it. I should not yell like that with uh, Mike. I'm just realizing that. But I, I get frustrated. I would never do that. Why would I spike the key? It's not the key's fault. The key is not equipped and grooved for what it needs to do to, to loosen the door, to unlock the door. But what do I do? I keep and I try another key. And I finally find the key that works. And I go inside. And I'm at home. I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm where I wanted to be. That's what our life in Christ is. Paul's saying, listen, you came from a different background, a different door, but you came into Christ. Christ is the only key to work to those doors from those different backgrounds. It's Christ alone. He says, but what you're doing, Gentile Christians, is you're acting like here you are home and you're warm, and you're going to walk outside the door, lock yourself out, and pretend like maybe another key will get me in. And you're trying the key that I've tried since I was a child. And I've tried it better than you're going to try it. And the Jews have been trying it. We've been trying it for over 1,500 years. It will not work. It's not capable of doing so. It's foolishness. Have you considered, have you considered that you were enslaved to false gods once before? Don't do it again. That's what he's drawing to. It goes into verse 9. Second question. Have you considered that you were set free by the true God to relationally know him? Have you considered that you were set free by the true God to relationally know Him? Verse 9, the very beginning. But now, again, that's also back in chapter 1, this statement, this, this conjunction that he uses to transition from the former life to the present life in Christ. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. I like how the New King James says, since you know God. And this is knowing God is a relational type of knowledge. It's an experiential relationship. Or you can know of somebody, but until you get to know them relationally, that's a different type of knowing. And that's what the type of knowing Paul's drawing on here. He says, church in Galatia, you know him. You know him. You know him, so what are you doing? Why be enticed to walk away? You already know God, and you know God the only way anyone could know God, and that's through Jesus Christ, the God-man. People may use the word God, people may use the word Jesus, but there is only one Jesus who saves. He is the eternal God-man who lived this in this life, who laid his life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross. There is but one key, and there is but one king. The challenge to the congregation is like a pleading parent who says to their child, you know better. Have you ever had that experience? you ever had a parent or somebody you love cared about you? Or maybe you're a parent and you had to tell that to your child? They did something wrong and you said, you knew better. You know better. Now your purpose in saying that isn't to backhand them, right? Your purpose in saying that is your hope for them is that they would see, you're right. 
and they would humble themselves, and you would embrace them and hug them. That's what Paul's trying to do for the church. He's saying, listen, you know better. You know there's no other way. You know God. So how can you possibly be enticed by another argument to abandon that and think you can know God better by the law rather than the only way by which we can know God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. By the way, next week in our sermon text, we're going to see how Paul takes that argument that the Judaizers are using and he sets an atomic bomb to it and blows. It's absolutely incredible text. But right now he deals with them and he says, listen, you know Christ, how can you be tempted to walk somewhere else? How can you do that? Now this can be confusing. A legitimate question as we come to this would say, wait a minute, are you telling me that a believer, somebody that knows Jesus Christ, has surrendered their life to Christ, can one day all of a sudden escape the hand of God? Can become unsaved? The answer is no. So why does Paul say this? Well, I think in a similar way as he does in the book of Hebrews that our chapel Sunday school class is walking through right now. In a similar way to all of us gathered here, I want to give an example. If I were to make this statement, as I make all the time, statements like this, and I were to say, praise God for your salvation, to a room of this, a couple hundred people, is every single person in this room every single week actually saved? The answer would be no. In all likelihood, at least one of us, or maybe many of us, don't know Christ any given week. And yet I still make the declaration to the congregation, the gathered assembly that is called Grace Bible Church. As we gather together, we invite others and we everybody and anybody come and worship with us. Come and hear the gospel with us. Come and celebrate Jesus Christ. Come and give your life over to the King and refocus your life on Christ. But the call is given to all. And yet if you don't know Christ, that's not a true statement for you, is it? So when we sing a song like we did a moment ago, this is my story, this is my song. For some of you, that's not true. Does that make sense? So we sing the song, we hear the word, we hear the claims, but all those that are in Christ, John 6 and John 8 make this abundantly clear. Jesus said the will of the Father is that he would lose none that the Father has given him. If you are in Christ, you will not be lost. And in John chapter 8, verse 29, he says, And I always do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that he would lose none, and he always does the will of the Father, and you're abiding in Christ, you've trusted in Christ. Can you be lost? No, you're his. But the charge is given to the whole congregation with many being enticed possibly to abandon. Those that are his, though, they will not leave. Believers may drift, but they will not capsize. They may run from fellowship in a local church, but they will not capsize. There's no timer on it, right? There's no calendar. And this is what makes it heartaching. And I, I think many of you, and I praise the Lord, we're in a multi-generational church in which many of you have had kids who have aged and gone. And, and your heartache that you feel an anxiety of a parent of saying, oh, dear Lord, please. There is no calendaring date by which we say, oh, they've been gone for six months. Now they're officially not believers. No, the Lord's timing is differently than our timing. And yet the anguish that you feel, I think, helps to give us an understanding of the love of our Lord, the discipline of our Lord and the care of our Lord. Sarah and I were talking the other day, and we made a foolish statement we both laughed at shortly afterwards. I said, I can't wait till the kids are here. I am worried about Uriah falling and hitting his head and doing all this stuff. And I, had to, I made this kind of suggestion of, I can't wait till he gets bigger and we won't have to worry about that anymore. 
Because you don't worry as a parent once they become teenagers. I'm super excited. I can't wait for the boys to become teenagers. I never have to worry again. It's going to be great. Or when they become adults, then you never worry, right? Parents, you never worry about your kids once they're adults. It's easy peasy after that, right? No worries at all. No. The Lord loves us, and Paul, as one who's discipled this body, he loves them and he cares for them. And he asks, have you considered, secondly, have you considered that you were set free by the true God to relationally know him? You already know Christ. You already know the authentic key. Why be tempted to go somewhere else? Wake up like a loving parent. Leads us to our third question. It really leads us to a striking contrast with what he says in the rest of verse 9 through verse 11. I phrase it as this question. Have you considered that you may not be growing in Christ, but rather away from Christ? So it seems that the argument of the Judaizers, those tempting them to come in and to to take on the law, take under the law, to grow closer to God, to go truly closer to Yahweh, that's a false claim. It's not true. It brings out this awareness that, you're, listen, you're not going to, to something that's going to make you closer to God. You're doing the opposite. You're going to worthless elementary principles. So here we go, verse 9. We'll pick it up. Not halfway through verse 9 through 11. He says, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, months, and seasons, and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. How can you turn back again? How can you do this? There's no purpose in what you're doing. In Proverbs 26, 11, it's one of my favorite verses of all time. I read it when I was a middle school boy for the first time, and I've held it dear in my heart. Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly. That verse is perfect for middle school boys. If you're a middle school boy, put that on your wall. It's true and gross. It's everything you hope for. Right? And what's happening is those that are in the church, those in the body of Christ, those that build their life on the gospel, here they are, and he's saying, like a dog returns to its vomit. Here you are about to leave the prime rib of Christ. For dog throw up. What's interesting is, remember, the Gentile believers didn't come from a Jewish background, did they? He did. But he he refers to both of them as worthless and weak things. It's because neither of them are able to justify us before a righteous and holy God. The futility of what they're doing, there's no hope in that. It's worthless. It's elementary. It's elementary in the the sense that you don't just stop at the basics. The law points them to Christ. They're to graduate on from the law to Christ. And he's saying, here you are about to abandon abandon Christ and go to elementary things. They'd be like somebody that's just an absolute brilliant mathematician. We have many math professors here. I could call you out by name, but I won't do that because you're not supposed to do that apparently. Uh, But it would be like one of our PhD math professors just dying to enroll themselves in kindergarten elementary math. Like, what do you, like, to teach it? No, I just want to take it again. I just want to go back. What, what is going on? Are you okay? That's what they're doing. They're tempted to go back and enroll in a course they never even took. It's a big foolishness to go back and to do such a thing, and yet that is what they're being enticed to do. They're flirting with putting themselves back under bondage and abandoning the true and good of Jesus Christ. And they've already taken a couple steps across the river. 
And he mentions those four different elements. You've, you've gone and you've begun to observe certain days, months, seasons, and years. Now, there's some debate on precisely those elements. I think it seems to me pretty clear that these are different Jewish observances that they're beginning to practice. They're beginning to keep Sabbath. They're beginning to do various ceremonial laws, uh, observe uh, Sabbath years, rest, things like that. It says they've started doing that. And so because they're already beginning to do that, his fear is that they're just a couple steps from going the whole way away from Christ and the gospel. And it leads him to say in verse 11, this statement, verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What I want to do is I want to, I don't think the ESV translates this for us very, as clear as it should be. His anxiety, and, and as an example, the New American, the New King James, the NIV, the Holman, all these other translations translate this, I think, more clearly for us. It's not that it's wrong, but it's not as clear as it should be. In the language, his anxiety, his fear, is not that he has labored over you in vain. If you just read the ESV in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain, you might think he's afraid he's wasted his life. And that's not what Paul's saying. In the language, Paul's saying, I am afraid for you that I might have labored in vain. You see the difference? One says, I'm afraid I wasted all my time. This didn't work. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I am afraid for you that I may have labored in vain. Do you see the difference? His fear for them is that they're about to go and destroy their lives. His regret isn't in doing so. His regret is a fearful regret for what's going to happen to them. A parent would never regret warning their child of a danger of what they were doing or about to do. A parent would never regret that. But oh, they would fear the consequence of their child if they rebuffed their correction. That's the fear that Paul has. If you are here and you do not know Jesus as your king, I promise you that there are people in your life who are fearful for you. Their fear is that they have labored in vain for you. Their prayer is that you would turn and trust in Christ and rest in the goodness of the gospel. That is their prayer for you, that you would become fruitful and rest in the goodness of the finished work of Christ. So make it clear here, to labor after being and making disciples of Jesus Christ is never in vain. There is no greater thing that by which you can pour your life out, no greater cause, no greater mission, no greater purpose than to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to commit your life to making disciples of Jesus Christ with other believers in Christ. There is no greater cause, there is no greater purpose in calling upon our lives than that one. Surrender your life to that call. And as the church, that's what we're constantly doing. Realigning our vision every week as we gather to be better at making disciples, more intentional at making disciples, more prayerful at making disciples. There is no vanity in the life of the one who pours them out, even if fruit never comes from the seeds that were planted for the gospel. Never be ashamed of that. There are countless stories of missionaries who have gone and thrown gospel seeds into fields all over for years and years and years, and no fruit came. Their fruit was not, in, their, their efforts were not in vanity. But it was for the goodness and glory of God. Even if they themselves never saw the fruit that came right away, they honored God and God worked in a way they will never see on this side of heaven. 
Towards the end of our service, Jeff and Greta Simon, as they go to Greece, we're going to pray for them and encourage them and support them. And with our missionaries, we want to pray for people, our missionaries. We want to commit to pray for them. We want to commit to support them through our church body. We also want to commit, as time goes, to send them teams, to encourage them with whatever they need in the field. But realize this, God's call upon every one of our lives as well is to be missionaries in our own minds, in our own places, because the Lord has stationed every one of us in Nacogdoches County. Oh, may we be fruitful, but the fruit is from the Lord. May we grow in Christ. The fruit that God brings is from the Lord. Never make the mistake of judging the effects of your ministry in life based upon the immediate fruit of others. Pray for fruit, but find, may He find us faithful as gospel-throwing farmers for all the days of our life. Number four, number four. Have you considered your first love? What a question. What a question to ask. Have you considered your first love? Verse 12 through 16. Listen to how he speaks to them. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? This portion sounds to me a lot like Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, and he speaks to the church in Ephesus. And I'll read it for you. He says in Revelation 2, 4 through 5, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. He says, Jesus says to them, But I have this against you, church in Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In the first century world, hospitality, as it is to be today, hospitality was a key mark of the Christian faith. What believers were to do as teachers would come in, gospel teachers like Paul, he says, the church in Galatia received them so. 2 John 10 11, we're going to talk about, we're not going to read it, but 2 John 10 11, give us a background of this hospitality as they practiced it. You were to open up your home. If you opened your home, if you were part of the church, under the oversight, again, of the elders there, but you opened up your home, you discerned the message, and you housed that missionary, you housed that preacher that was coming in, this apostle in this case. You opened your house, you fed them, you clothed them, you cared for them, and your house became a gospel outpost. The church would gather and be taught by them in your home. And we think of homes, we think they were all small, but archaeologically we know that many of the homes in the first century world were actually, you could fit hundreds of people in them. They were giant homes just like there are large homes today and smaller homes. But if you opened your home to them to show hospitality to them, it came with a cost. Literally, it came with a cost. What Paul's saying is he's bringing back to their memory when they first met him, when he came there, they were so hospitable for, towards him. They were so hospitable towards him that he had some kind of ail, eye ailment, a problem with his vision. 
And he says, you love me so much, you receive me like I was an angel. Angel meaning messenger as well, either a literal angel or a direct messenger of Jesus Christ. You receive me as an angel. You receive me like I was Jesus Christ himself. And if you could have, you would have ripped out your eyeballs and given them to me to improve my vision. That's hospitality, right? We're going to start putting eyeballs in our guest bags. Right? We're not. It was a really weird thing to say. I really regret making that statement out loud. It just stayed in the mind. But he loved him so much. The church loved the gospel so much. Let me clarify. The church at Galatia loved the gospel so much that it compelled them to show true, loving hospitality to Paul. And he tries to bring their minds back to when they first remembered the gospel. So you and I must ask ourselves the question, do I love Christ? Do I love the people of God? Do I love God's word like I did when I first came to receive the gospel? And if not, what adjustments can we make in our lives? There's no accidents in that question. But oh, that the Lord would use that to stir in our hearts like coals to a great raging fire of a love for the Lord and His Word and His people and His mission. It leads us to our fifth question. Have you considered that law teachers, have you considered that law teachers, teachers of the law, they emphasize the you and they puff up themselves. They emphasize you. They tell you what you want to hear. They put the focus on you. And then they put the emphasis on themselves. They puff up themselves. While gospel teachers emphasize and puff up Christ. Teachers of the gospel are aimed for building up Christ. Teachers of the law or other things are about ultimately doing what they need to do to puff up themselves, which becomes place the emphasis somehow on the person, on man. This is the dangerous trap. Literally, the, the law teachers here, this word can be translated just as legitimately as court you. They make much of you or they court you, they date you. They're pursuing you, studying you to date you. Now, we all know on your first date with somebody, you are just trying to show yourself flaws and all, right? Is that what a first date is? Just Let me show them just how messed up I am. Hey, you want to meet my whole family? Right, All the statements you could give to show any kind of uh, faults and insecurities you have on the first date. No, but that's what the false teachers are doing. They're coming and they're presenting them in such a way that they're trying to entice them. They're placing the focus on themselves. 2 Timothy 4.3 gives the same warning. The warning, the emphasis is placed upon man, these ear ticklers. The desire to have the emphasis placed on what they want to hear. You're awesome, you're wonderful. And it gives the picture that there's a desire in certain people, and all of us in reality, to have it our way. To have it our way. And we'll look for other people that will tell us, you're right, you should have it your way. And that's what false teachers do. That's their nature, that's their gathering, that's their purpose. They'll do that rather than place the emphasis upon Jesus Christ and the goodness of the Word. That becomes their focus. And there's a warning for every one of us gathered here today that there is a part of us still in the flesh. There's a part of us that like a frog boiling in hot water, it doesn't jump out because it changes slow. In every one of our lives, there is a danger 
to shift the emphasis from God and the truth of his word to make ourselves the star of the show. To take a book that makes Jesus Christ the center of all and to make Jesus Christ a supporting actor in the story of our lives. We must all be constantly aware of this danger and we must love one another enough that when we begin to do so, we care enough to say, listen, realign yourself with the gospel. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ, the king and the key. Do you know him? Do you know him? That's our call as a church family. It's a beautiful call. You contrast the false teachers, the teachers of the law, with Paul. What does Paul say? My little children, in verse 19. My little children. Oh, how he loves them. My little children, for whom I am in anguish of childbirth. Again, his labor is not that they make much of him, but that Christ is formed in them. His labor and his anxiety at night isn't that they follow him, it's that they follow the gospel that he teaches. His anguish is that they would follow Christ, that Christ would be formed in them. The false teachers aim to take the Galatian church and make them like fish on a stringer and hold them up. People aren't praising the fish, right? That'd be an interesting fishing technique. Hey, fish, come here. It's going to be an awesome picture. Just jump on this stringer. Let me take it of you. But he says that's what the teachers of the law are doing. They sound like they're showing, they're using the bait to show, oh, you like this. When they catch you, when they hook you under the law, under the burden of the law, they'll hold you up on their stringer and say, look at me. Look at me. What Paul does in contrast is he says, I am anguished for you. I am anguished not to hold you up like a stringer like they're doing, but I am anguished that Christ is formed in you all. That's the cry that we must have for the rest of our lives. This text, it places it in a corporate setting. Yes, we are adopted by faith in Christ, and this is an individual experience. God doesn't have grandkids. He has children through faith in Christ. But we're adopted and saved into a body, a local church. This is how He's made us. So when trials begin to befall your life, when temptations of ear tickling come in your life and you least expect it, that you have a body to practice the one another's with. It's called the one another's, not the one alone's, right? Forgive one another. Serve one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Be patient with one another. And the fruit of the Spirit is cut from the same vine. Love is not shown individually. Love is shown corporately. Joy is expressed corporately. Paul will say that in a multitude of his letters. I can't wait till we get the fruit of the Spirit section. As we walk through this letter, my hope for us is that every single week, you would see more and more how good and how sweet the Word of God is to build our life upon. To rewire and reassess our marriages constantly by according to this book. To take the goals that we think we're pursuing after and sit under the goodness of the Word of God. To take the yoke of Christ upon our shoulders and rest in Him. The Lord's Word and the Lord's calling is worthy of our lives. Everything else is in vanity. But the Lord's Word will stand 
forever. Is he worthy of your life? He is. Commit yourself to a local body of Christ. Invite accountability and run for the Lord. Run for the Lord. And make disciples for the kingdom of God. He is good. Amen? Amen. Next steps. Next steps. First question. When will I take the time this week to reflect on these five questions in my own life? When will I take the time this week to reflect on these five questions in my own life? I say, when will I take the time? Because if I say take the time, you may not actually put down the the calendar to, to do that, to make that happen. So my encouragement to you is right now, even where you're at, whether it's in your phone, your calendar, or with a pen, something you can write it down. If your spouse is here, the family member is here sitting beside you, choose a time. Talk through these five questions. Look at it and say, hey, how can I apply this? How can I apply this to your life? If you have a child that's over uh, in the kids' area, do the same. Discuss these five questions. Let them see mommy and daddy talking about it. Talk through, find a time, schedule a time to talk through these five types of questions. And secondly, what steps will I take to get to know my brothers and sisters well enough? If here at Grace, then here at Grace that I can be assured that I have accountability in my life so when I am tempted to be able to put the focus on me instead of on Christ, they'll love me enough to put their arm around me. And like a parent who's been in labor and anguish for me would say, I love you and I care about you, but have you considered? Have you considered? In Grace Bible, we stand humbly and unashamedly in Christ alone. We build our life on Christ alone. We will die for Christ alone. He is our King. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our response. Would you stand together as we sing this beautiful song to Jesus Christ, our King?